Hello and welcome to another Imagining Freedom podcast, which is focused on our rights and freedoms. COP26 is the latest globalist elite theatre and it's coming to a city near me this week. COP26 is such a strange title. Apparently the COP stands for Conference of the Parties and the 26th signifies that it's the 26th such event. The parties are the countries that have signed up to the 1992 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. I'm sure that there are people involved in this whole enterprise who have genuinely wholesome motivations. But everything that comes out of these climate change talks seems to move us further away from democracy and closer to a kind of elite control. And by elites, I'm looking at the world's biggest investors and investment funds. I think this could be the main reason why many people, including myself, are sceptical of climate change. I'm not denying that climate change is happening. I think it might be. But I'm not convinced that it's man-made. In other words, anthropomorphic. The climate does change over the years. It's never been fixed. 11,000 years ago, Scotland, my home country, was covered in an ice sheet. It must have been like the Arctic, with only the tops of some of the mountains peeking out above the surface of the ice, as none attacks. As the climate changed, the ice sheets melted and humans moved in. This was a process of natural forces. It wasn't caused by people driving cars or flying in aeroplanes or putting on bright lights. But I'm not making this episode to discuss the veracity or otherwise of climate change science. I want to look at the actual outcomes of the kinds of initiatives that are staged to supposedly address climate change, like COP26. Because the way I see it, these initiatives generally lead to two things. Increased control over people and increased profits for the world's most powerful people. The whole thing is riddled with hypocrisy. There are so many environmental horrors that are just ignored in these high-level discussions or dismissed using questionable science. If there's an environmental issue that would be very costly to the world's most profitable industries to address, it tends to get ignored or put on the back burner. But an issue that can bring juicy profits to the world's biggest investors on the back of government cooperation and taxpayer funding generally gets massively promoted in the media. And after that, it often gets embedded into law. This happens again and again and again. I could give so many examples. And here's one. Electric and hybrid cars were not just ignored, but scoffed at volubly in the motoring press for decades until ways were devised to make electric car batteries expensive, monopolistic and profitable to a few big players in the motoring industry and related investors. This is being bedded in by systematically outlawing almost all other forms of fueling motor vehicles. Look at how biofuels were denigrated and then outlawed a few years ago. So people will eventually be dependent on these really expensive battery systems that are actually very destructive to the environment. The production of electric car batteries relies on rare earth materials 
and there's currently no sustainable way to recycle or dispose of them. Fuel cells offer alternative, cleaner ways to, p to power motor vehicles, but that business is currently in the hands of smaller players. And I suspect that once the bigger investors work out ways to monopolise the fuel cell industry, that will also be, be pushed on the masses. This kind of thing is happening in so many industries, including agriculture and food. Smaller farmers and food suppliers are gradually phased out, often with the help of so-called environmental legislation, so that the big investors can step in and monopolise food production. We're being told that we shouldn't eat meat because of its carbon footprint. And in its place, we're being pushed towards fake lab-produced meat substitutes that some of the world's biggest investors already have a major stake in. Pun not intended, because this is no laughing matter. In fact, I stopped eating meat in the, the early 1980s. And recently, I was taking a short journey by sea. So I, was, I had a very early start. So the night before, I was looking on the website of the ship company and it was talking about this menu, this vegetarian breakfast menu, and it sounded amazing with eggs and mushrooms and extra baked beans, etc. So I thought, I won't bother with breakfast the next morning. I'll just have breakfast on the voyage. And I joined the queue as soon as the ship disembarked. And I asked the women behind the counter for the vegetarian breakfast, the big vegetarian breakfast. And um, she, she hunted around and found a box full of... And she said, oh, it's not vegetarian, it's vegan. And it was just full of reconstituted crap, really. So I just said, no, thanks. And the staff actually very kindly made me an egg, egg roll, which was delicious. Everywhere, it seems, people are turning from towards these vegan, reconstituted, like nothing against vegans, but this reconstituted, reconstituted fake stuff. COP10 was focused on biodiversity, but what we're being steered towards is the opposite of biodiversity. To the elites, biodiversity means finding ways to keep the plebs out of specially designated wilderness areas. But when it comes to industry, there's very little diversity and the field gets increasingly narrow. Shadowy technocrats are lecturing us plebs on what we are going to have to do. And yes, I do mean shadowy technocrats because they often seem to, prepare, to prefer to keep their identities quiet, maybe with good reason. We are told that our travelling will have to be controlled. This comes at the same time as billionaires vie with each other to provide space tourism for fun and profit. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos has made five rocket-powered flights to the edges of the Earth's atmosphere this year, while Richard Branson and Elon Musk have their own space tourism plans. But we filthy little commoners are hectored for using our own cars. How dare we commute to work or fly off for a holiday? We should be travelling by bike, regardless of whether we have heavy loads to carry or elderly relatives to transport. These billionaires must be laughing their heads off as they orbit the globe and blast thousands of satellites into outer space. A recent BBC headline said, Make people fly less, ministers told. This headline seems intended to make the blood boil. Government ministers are meant to be our public servants. 
We are the ones who pay their salaries from our taxes. So who are these people giving the government ministers these orders? The article refers to a report that was published by the Climate Change Committee advisory body. The report is called Independent Assessment, the UK's Net Zero Strategy. It says that key issues need to be resolved in the coming months and that the committee will be closely monitoring this progress. These key issues include a combined decarbonisation strategy for agriculture and land, which they say is needed urgently. The development of plans for energy efficiency in owner-occupied homes. For most of us, that's our own homes. These proposals would include the phasing out of oil boilers from 2026 and a commitment to look at rebalancing policy costs on electricity and gas to favour electrification. So rising gas prices are probably not accidental. Gas boilers in homes would be phased out by 2033 and instead a move towards heat pumps would be favoured. I've nothing against heat pumps. I've been thinking of installing one in my own home. But I'm suspicious when these things are imposed on an industrial scale. Everyone has to stop doing this. Everyone has to start doing that. The next issue in this report strikes me as very sinister. In a paragraph headed Demand Measures, as part of their criticism of government efforts, the report says... There is less emphasis on consumer behaviour change. The government does not address the role of diets or limiting the growth of aviation demand in reducing emissions, while policies to reduce or reverse traffic growth are underdeveloped. These options must be explored further. Diet advice notoriously seems to change on a daily basis. And the healthy diet advice of the 1970s is now often seen as completely flawed. And where this committee calls for the growth of aviation demand to be limited or traffic growth to be reversed or reduced, they don't say exactly how this might be achieved. We can only guess. So who are these people who are lecturing our government on diets, travel and even the way we heat our homes? Usually when a committee produces a report, they put their names on it, maybe a few words from the chair or a list of members. But these things seem to be absent from this document. So I did an online search to find out who the Committee on Climate Change actually are. According to Wikipedia, the Climate Change Committee was formed in 2008 as a statutory committee with Lord Adair Turner as its chair. Adair Turner is a businessman who worked for BP and then Chase Manhattan Bank before becoming a director of the management consultancy firm McKinsey & Co. He was director general of the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, from 1995 to 1999. And from 2000 to 2006, he was vice chairman of Merrill Lynch Europe. So this Committee on Climate Change seems to have its roots in government and business rather than environmental science. The current chair of the Climate Change Committee is Lord Debon, better known as John Selwyn Gummer, 
who was Con- Conservative Party chairman from 1983 to 85 and was then Secretary of State for the Environment from 1993 to 97. Other members of the Committee on Climate Change include Baroness Brown of Cambridge, a British engineer and crossbench member of the House of Lords, who is chair of the Carbon Trust and the Henry Royce Institute. Nick Chater, Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School and a member of the Behavioural Insights Team, also known as the Nudge Unit, which has received a lot of attention in recent months. The next person mentioned by Wikipedia as a member of this Committee on Climate Change is Dr Rebecca Heaton. And in fact, she actually stepped down from the committee in July this year following questions over her position as a senior executive with Drax. Drax is a large biomass power station which received £832 million in government subsidies in 2020. An article on dsmog.com quotes Phil MacDonald of the energy think tank Ember as saying The conflict of interest has long been glaring, but in recent years it became blinding. He added Drax, one of the country's largest recipients of, quotes, green public funds, shouldn't have a role in advising the government on the best route to take action on climate change. After Dr Heaton stepped down from the Climate Change Committee, she was appointed as the Director of Sustainability for OVO Energy. Other members of the Climate Change Committee include Piers Forster, a Professor of Physical Climate Change and Director of the Priestley International Centre for Climate at the University of Leeds. Forster was Principal Investigator of the Integrated Assessment of Geoengineering Proposals Project. And he's also a trustee of a UK rainforest protection charity called United Bank of Carbon. Paul Gavin Johnson, an economist and, and civil servant who was the deputy head of the Government Economic Service in the early 2000s. Professor Corinne Lequery, CBEFRS, a French-Canadian scientist. She is Royal Society Research Professor of Climate Change Science at the University of East, East Anglia and former director of the Tyndall Science Centre for Climate Change Research, and she's the chair of the French High Council on Climate. James Ferguson Skia, CBE FRSA, Professor of Sustainable Energy at Imperial College London's Centre for Environmental Policy, and a member of the Bureau of Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC. Skia has also served as a non-executive director of BlackRock, New Energy Investment Trust, PLC, since 2009. He's also Vice President of the Energy Institute and sits on the advisory board of the Scott Institute for Energy Innovation at Carnegie Mellon University. He was a co-author of the IPCC October 8th, 2018 special report on global warming of 1.5 C. So that should give you an idea of the kind of people who are behind this report and where their interests lie. Some of them may well have solid and genuine environmental concerns, but many of them seem to be representative of business and investment interests. Whether intentionally or not, this committee seems to be promoting those big business and big investment interests. 
I searched the report to see if there was any mention of concrete or cement because concrete is said to be responsible for between 4 and 8% of the world's CO2. There's no mention of concrete or cement in the report. I suspect that concrete will go the way of petrol and diesel. It'll suddenly start to be demonised and phased out by various laws. But that won't happen until a suitable global alternative is found, a profitable global alternative. And that alternative material will be used for almost all buildings. It'll be enforced by law and elite investors will profit. That's my guess. I personally would prefer to see much more diversity in building, with a greater variety of alternative substances used to build houses, and for it to be made easier for people to obtain land and build their own homes if they want to do so. There are other urgent environmental issues that seem to completely escape the scrutiny of these high-level, highly promoted discussions. I suspect it's because there haven't been any means devised to wield big profits from them through public taxation or legislation outlawing various essential items and replacing them with more monopolistic industries to benefit the elite few. Even worse, some of the most urgent global environmental issues could mean major profit losses from some of the world's biggest investors or they are just costly to government and industry, and therefore not seen as priorities, unlike the juicy profits that can be made out of climate change hysteria. The most glaring of these issues is plastic production. Plastic waste chokes wildlife and destroys habitats. It's washed up on beautiful beaches and it clogs up oceans with hideous floating islands. Large-scale plastic production began in the 1950s, and more than 8.3 billion tonnes of plastic have been been produced since then. Around 76% of this is now waste, and only 9% has been recycled. Around half of all the plastic in existence was produced in the last 15 years. And plastic can take between 500 and 1,000 years to degrade. And it's not just the disposal of plastic that's the problem. It's very costly in terms of fossil fuels to produce. The Pacific Institute reported that in 2006, 17 million barrels of oil were required to produce produce plastic for bottled water in the United States for one year, enough to power more than a million motor vehicles for a year. But governments are more concerned about phasing out oil-based central heating than phasing out water bottles. Governments pay lip service to the issue of plastic pollution by enforcing payments for plastic bags in supermarkets and grocery stores when most of the individual supermarket goods come wrapped in plastic anyway. The issue never seems to be properly addressed, far from it. Software upgrades and unreplaceable batteries on phones and computers and tech manufacturers' emphasis on encouraging new purchases and discouraging repairs just adds to the mountains of waste that no one seems to know what to do about, or care, really. There was a brilliant 40-minute film about this made in 2012 called The Light Bulb Conspiracy. It was originally released in cinemas, and then it became available on YouTube until it was withdrawn due to a legal issue. Eventually it came back, and it seems to disappear and reappear on various channels ever since.
Another issue that governments pay lip service to is neonicotinoids. And this particularly concerns the Scottish government, the hosts of COP26. Neonicotinoids are chemicals often used in pesticides that are thought to be connected with honeybee colony collapse and the disappearance of some insect-eating birds, as well as the, the insects that they feed on. The use of neonicotinoids was restricted in the EU from 2013, and the three main neonicotinoids were banned for outdoor use by the EU in 2018. There was a lot of excitement in the press following these measures, and many people thought that the dangers to wildlife from these chemicals was at an end. But there are certain loopholes that allow certain types of neonicotinoids to continue to be used, used, and one area where they're used is in Scottish forestry. The issue first came to my attention because of my interest in hillwalking, because I'd noticed that managed forests often seem to be devoid of wildlife, with no birds singing, no apparent life whatsoever. I also noticed how incredibly boggy the land is after the trees have been chopped down. I'm certainly not against forestry. I use loo paper, I use all kinds of paper, and I use lots of things made from wood as well. So I completely understand and support the need for managed forests. But when I looked into why many of these managed forests are so devoid of wildlife, that's when I found out about the continued use of neonicotinoids. The neonicotinoid asatomiprid is one of two that is still approved by the EU. And that's the one that's apparently used to treat the Hylobius tree weevil. The forestry industry claims that if these pesticides were not used, 50% of these managed forests in Scotland would be lost. I think this goes to the heart of the issue. This is about the control of big industry and big investment overriding the voices of a more mixed and diverse range of enterprises. It's not a choice between bees and managed forestry. It's a choice between bees and certain levels of profitability from forestry. Ordinary people are being squeezed. We're expected to work longer hours or take on more work as life becomes increasingly unaffordable. In fact, we've even been told that millions of people are set to be worse off next year, according to the latest budget. Petrol prices are rising. We're being told to expect big increases in food prices and heating costs. We're being told not to fly overseas, that we won't even, even be able to park overnight in laybys soon. Enormous pressure has been placed on small and family-run businesses over the past couple of years. Yet when it comes to bigger industries, everything seems to be done to secure their profits. Big investors seem to have governments completely wrapped around their fingers. Democracy is a joke and not a funny one. The climate change issue is nothing but a gravy train, in my opinion. To be calling climate change an emergency, a crisis, at a time when tens of thousands of satellites are being blasted into outer space by private firms owned by billionaires in order to build 5G networks that few consumers seem to want or need and that will increase the control grid over the movements of ordinary people just emphasises how completely bought and paid for our puppet governments are.
COP26 opens on the 31st of October, Halloween, a date that last year became known as Fright Night after Prime Minister Boris Johnson's lockdown announcement on that date. So many significant governance events over the past couple of years have coincided with important dates in the pagan Celtic calendar. Is it all coincidence? Or is COP26 going to be another landmark in enforcing control over the masses? If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you'd like to make a comment, download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening.